verses 12 through 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Finally, let's look at chapter 16, verses one through three. Observe in the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life may be remembered the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. One of the funnest and at the same time most intimidating classes that I took during seminary was called Preaching Practicum. It was among the last classes you took in the program, and uh, as you can hear in the name, you start to put into practice everything that you've learned so far. So the class is set up like this. Over the course of a semester, all the guys in the class preach three different times. But here's the thing. You don't preach at a church. You preach to your classmates. Now, everybody's really supportive, but it's still kind of an awkward setup. Because as you're preaching, everybody's filling out these evaluation forms. And it kind of feels like America's Got Talent, but just with preaching. Now, from what I remember, on our evaluation forms, there were different categories to grade each other on. There were categories like dynamic delivery and gospel centrality, clear explanation, vivid illustration, and concrete application. These chapters in Deuteronomy got me thinking of that last category, concrete application. If you were with us last week, we noticed how the structure of Deuteronomy as a whole is sort of like a picture frame. And the middle section of the book, which we're in now, chapters 12 through 26, is like the actual picture. We call these the covenant stipulations. In other words, these are the specific ways God calls his people to live. And as we said, these covenant stipulations more or less unpack the Ten Commandments. So over the course of chapters 12 through 26, He's showing what does it look like to live out the Ten Commandments. And I think today we see especially these chapters unpack the third and the fourth commandment. You see, it's one thing to say in the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's one thing to say in the fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's another thing to say, here's what this actually looks like when you live in your day-to-day life. That's what these chapters are doing in Deuteronomy. It's turning what could be mushy and vague into something that's clear and concrete. I think in this way, the Bible actually models for you how to handle the Bible yourself. 
The Lord intends that you reflect deeply and honestly about the specific, tangible, concrete ways you can respond to his word. You see, vague application of the Bible makes for people who are only vaguely Christians. Deuteronomy 14 through 16 is getting specific about what it looks like to live out the third and fourth commandment, especially for that people and in that time and in that place. I think you can summarize the message of these chapters in this way. You'll find this printed on the back of your bulletin. Main point of Deuteronomy 14 to 16. The people of God's identity as chosen and redeemed should make them live distinct, gracious, and glad lives. We see this in the specific areas of mourning, eating, and their patterns of living. Let's start with the specific area of mourning. I'm not talking about mourning versus evening. I'm talking about mourning as in grieving. Moses probably brings up this topic because they've just encountered several scenarios where capital punishment would be required. So death is fresh on their mind. And here is a little bit of instruction about how they are to respond to death. Not a complete instruction, but a little bit. Moses just spends two verses. Look back with me at chapter 14, verses one and two. He says, you are the sons of the Lord. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, I imagine that your friendly local funeral home would probably frown upon these practices as well. Like if you showed up at a funeral home with just a strip of bald spot in the middle of your head and cuts all over yourself, you would probably make people feel uncomfortable. So what gives with these instructions? Well, this is one of those places where it's very obvious that while the Bible is written for you, it's living and active, the Bible wasn't originally written to you. That might seem obvious, but it actually shaped how you read the word. It was written for you, but not originally to you. There's a different original audience. And so the people it was originally written to, these instructions would make perfect sense. It's like, oh yeah, Moses, I've seen that before. I've seen people do that before. Uh, This is people who don't worship God. They worship other gods. This is what they do in response to people dying. They likely knew exactly what Moses was talking about. And so these practices, you and I might not see them today, but there's a principle underneath this instruction that remains. Don't respond to death as if you're somebody who doesn't believe in God. You should be distinct from the world, even stand out in the world, even in how you respond to death. Why should you stand out? Because of who you are. That's what verse two says. You are a people holy to the Lord and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So how do you stand out in your response to death? Well, I think you don't need to look any further than how Jesus responded to death. Just a few months ago, we were in John chapter 11 and Jesus comes to those grieving over the loss of his friend Lazarus and he stands with them. He listens to them. He even weeps with them. Now, like we noticed during that time, there's likely multiple reasons for Jesus's tears, but it's hard to deny that one of those reasons was his compassion for people. Friends, have you noticed how the word death has become something of a curse word in our time? It's become a taboo to say. You don't say that someone died, you say they passed away. You don't go to a funeral, you go to a celebration of life. Now, I'm not saying to be insensitive. I'm not saying to be ungrateful for the deceased. What I'm saying is this. Imagine going to a funeral and actually being sad. 
And actually treating the funeral not as some type of retirement party, but treating it like someone died. Actually grieving, not denying the hard reality that's in front of you. Actually being sad because there's real hurt involved. Because death isn't how it's supposed to be. My friend, is this this how you respond to death or do you just brush over it? That is how Jesus responded to death. But that's not all Jesus did. He didn't just grieve. He also responded to death with the gospel, the good news that centers around him and what he's come to do, that he is the resurrection and the life. He's the one who laid down his life and and took it up again so that now all those who believe in Jesus, though they might die, yet they shall live like he did. Brothers and sisters, you too can stand out in this world that wants to avoid death by honestly confronting it with grief and yet confronting it with hope of the gospel. And I have to take a moment to commend two of our sisters who have done that so well in the recent months. Uh, Betty Lucas in responding to the the death of her brother, and even Aaron Downs in responding to the death of her dad. God wants his people to stick out, live distinct in specific areas, concrete areas in their lives. We saw that quickly with mourning. But the second area is eating. We see this in chapter 14, Verses 3 through 21. Now, this is a list of unclean and clean foods. We've encountered a list like this before in Leviticus. But before we ask what makes foods clean and what makes foods unclean, we should ask, why talk about food in the first place? Remember, we're talking about how these chapters give shape to what the Ten Commandments look like in your everyday life. What is a more basic Daily task than eating food. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says this, a God who governs the kitchen would not be easily forgotten in the rest of life. So if the Israelites did this well, that means every single meal would remind them of who they are and what God has done for them. Every single meal. They could realize that out of all the foods we could eat, we choose to eat these Just as, out of all the peoples God could have chosen, he chose us. Every single meal would be a reminder of that. Okay, now we get to the part that you're interested in. What explains the animals that they're allowed to eat and the animals they're not allowed to eat? Is it just all random? No, I think you can see at least three reasons. First, the animals that uh, that they can eat seem to be the ones that behave normally for an animal in its class. We see this especially in how animals get around and move. So the animals, for example, with cloven hoofs or the fish with fins or the insects with hopping legs, all of these animals move in a way that's normal for its class. This could be God subtly reminding his people of how they should live. They should live and move within the norms of how he's called them to live. Second, what what explains what animals are clean, what animals they're allowed to eat, what animals they're not? I think second reason is that the animals that are unclean are normally associated with death. So chapter 14, verse 12, they are to avoid birds of prey. Chapter 14, verse 21, they are to avoid animals that died naturally. I think the message is this, to be careless about coming into contact with death is to be far from the God of life. Third, they are to avoid animals associated with the nations that don't worship the Lord. Take a look at the end of chapter 14, verse 21. It's going to sound really strange. You aren't to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, not only would this have been a practice of mixing life and death, this was also likely a Canaanite magician's practice. This was a practice of somebody who doesn't worship God. 
Now, I know what you might be thinking, given all these reasons, all this list of things we, they can't eat, things they can, can't eat. Steve, what do I do with this part of the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. God still, I'm going to make a case, God still calls you to live out your unique identity, even in how you eat. But it's going to look a little bit different. I'm, I'm thinking of the verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You guys know this verse. It goes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. I think we often overlook that eat or drink part. We just, well, how would I eat or drink to the glory of God? I want, I want to show you, though this part might not apply to you in the same way. So look back at Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. There, God calls the Israelites sons of God. This is a title, it's an office. And that it's, it's meant to pick up in the description of Jesus. Jesus was the perfect son, capital S, of God. The perfect Israelite. He was the light to the nations that the Israelites were meant to be. God had promised Abraham that through his offspring, which would eventually be Israel, that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus fulfills that promise through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on the cross, through his resurrection. He brings blessing to all the nations. So that now those from any nation, both Jew and Gentile, all those who trust in him now belong to the people of God. So that in Jesus, the distinction between Jew and Gentile no longer matters. Ephesians 2, it's been torn down. So that distinction between Jew and Gentile no longer needs to be displayed in that they eat different things. Rather, the new unity in Christ between Jew and Gentile is now displayed because they eat the same things. Acts chapter 10, Jesus instructs Peter, a Jew, that he can now eat with Cornelius, a Gentile, because they are united in the same family through faith in Christ. They have a common savior. So even though this list of clean and unclean foods is fulfilled in Jesus, I'm saying to you, you can still live out your identity as belonging to God and show it even in how you eat. You say, Steve, how do I do that? You don't need to look any further than how Jesus ate. Pay attention. How did Jesus eat? Jesus ate with gratitude to his heavenly father. We live in a world, you and I live in a world where there's a lot of food and we can mindlessly consume consume and be the old word of gluttonous. Gratitude is the opposite of gluttony. How did did Jesus teach you to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Brother and sister, don't ever underestimate that every single meal you ever eat comes ultimately from the kind, faithful provision of your heavenly father. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? This little boy gave him a plate of food. What's the first thing that Jesus did with it? He gave thanks. He gave thanks. Oh, brother and sister, what if you didn't treat prayer before a meal as just a formality? God, we thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. What if you actually prayed before every meal? How meaningful of a pattern would that be woven into your daily life? Think about how Jesus ate, and that can make you stand out to the world. Jesus ate with grace for sinners. What were the Pharisees upset with Jesus about? This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. He eats with bad people. But remember, it wasn't the sinners who rubbed off on Jesus. It was Jesus who rubbed off on the sinners. So I want you to think of maybe that same-sex couple who lives a couple houses down from you. 
I want you to think of that Muslim coworker or that atheist friend. None of those people will probably step foot, step foot into this church with you, but maybe those people would step foot into your home and share a meal. Maybe those people would make, step into a restaurant and share a meal there. Brother and sister, remember Jesus's grace to you, that though an unclean sinner, he rescued you with his clean life and his precious blood so that you could eat at his table. How could you leverage the dinner table for evangelism like Jesus did? How do you stick out in the world, even in how you eat? Think about how Jesus ate. Jesus ate with gladness with his friends. He ate with gladness with his friends. Remember when he went to the wedding feast at Cana. Remember when he served and taught his friends at the Last Supper. Remember when he ate breakfast with them after he rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, how could you leverage meals for discipleship and friendship and encouragement? How many meals do you just eat alone? I so appreciate how good you are at meal trains, having benefited from it myself. Thank you. I wonder, could you include someone who is single from church in your family dinner at least once a month? You know, we have many widows here who would be so encouraged if you did that for them. Include someone who is single from church in your family dinner once a month. I wonder, could you meet with someone from church regularly for breakfast or during your lunch hour? in order to encourage them, in order to pray for them, in order to go through a Christian book together, in order to hold one another accountable? Could you use your meals, leverage your meals for discipleship and friendship and encouragement like Jesus did? All right, so, so far in Deuteronomy 14, God has told his people what to avoid. He's made them his own. They're to represent him in the world. And now the watching world is gonna see what God is like through how they live. And if they live no differently than the world, then they're gonna be lying about who God is. So if these instructions are about how to live out the third commandment well, then I think this is the connection. Friend, if you live just like the world, you are going to give the world more reasons to disregard God's name and to take God's name in vain. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's very piercing indictment in Romans 2, 24, where he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The bottom line is this, the people around you can tell whether the gospel you claim to believe with your lips actually makes a difference in how you live. People can tell that. And that difference in how you live doesn't just show up in the things you stop doing. It shows up in the things you start doing. Chapter 14, verse 22, through chapter 16, verse 17, give a positive vision for new patterns of life. This is the third specific area where you are to stand out in the world. Specific new patterns of living. We're looking here at chapter 14, verse 22, through chapter 16, verse 17. Now across this section, you're gonna see three different patterns of living. And all these patterns are further reflections on the fourth commandment, to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So all these patterns of living are gonna give a fuller picture of what does it look like to have your life shaped by worship and rest. So you'll see three patterns from chapter 14, verses 22 to 29. There's the pattern of tithing. In chapter 15, there's the pattern of the Sabbath year. And then in chapter 16, there's the pattern of the yearly feasts. Now, I want to explain these three patterns. And then I want to close by showing three currents or streams that run underneath them all. So first pattern is the pattern of tithing. 
The pattern of tithes involves activities that you would do every year. The pattern of tithes involves activities you would do every three years. Take a look at chapter 14, verse 22. Every year they would take 10% of what they got in and bring it to the place God told them. And as we noticed last week, eventually this place would be the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if they couldn't haul all of that produce with them, they could sell it, bring the money, and then buy stuff once they got there. So they were to take either what they brought or what they bought and use it for a feast. Now, since there's no way they could have consumed 10% of their yearly produce in one sitting, what's left over, they would give to the Levites. This was the tribe of Israel who were the priests who had no land of their own. And they depended on the other tribes so that they could concentrate on their work. Then at the end of every three years, their tithes are to be especially for people from their own hometown. And this time is not just for the Levites. It's also for those uh, like the sojourner or the immigrant, the orphans and the widows, other groups of people who would be especially dependent on others and even especially vulnerable to being taken advantage of. This is the pattern of tithes every year, every three years. So maybe a question you're asking, you're thinking, or at least I hope you're thinking, is should people in the church now still tithe? Have you asked that? Have you wondered about that? Have you answered that question? Should people in the church still tithe? Well, I am convinced no and yes. I'm helped by Pastor Jamie Dunlop from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. This is actually from an article we give to all incoming members of the church at West Creek. Uh, Pastor Jamie points out that the tithing in the Old Testament may have been 10% of their annual income, but they had other offerings required by God that would actually total up closer to 23% of their annual income. So if you want to push on the tithing thing, don't just talk about 10%, talk about the 23%. Now, remember, they're not just supporting a local church, they're supporting an entire society. Church and state are mixed. And we come to the New Testament and how the New Testament instructs us Christians under the New Covenant. And nowhere does it say specifically you need to give 10% to your favorite charity and then you're good. But 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 does instruct Christians to give in keeping with their own income. Setting aside money the first day of each week. Elsewhere, Galatians 6, 6 says... Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who, is teach, who teaches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul commends one church by giving with rich generosity and because they gave beyond their ability. Rich generosity, beyond their ability. Generous, sacrificial. You know, uh, one counsel that I've heard is not original to me, that when you go down to write your check, or when you go online to give and, you, and you, before you write that number, if that number doesn't give you a little pause and doesn't hurt a little bit, uh, you might not be giving sacrificially and, ge- and generously. And for all this, the Bible still teaches that we must balance what we give to the church with our other financial obligations. Paul says that a man who does not provide for his own ba- family's basic needs has, quote, denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. So here's the bottom line. Maybe 10% is a good starting place for most. But I think it's more important that you remember every dollar you have comes from the Lord and should be spent in honor to the Lord. Every single one. 
So that's the pattern of tithing. Another pattern of living we see in this section, the positive vision for uh, God's people, is the pattern of the Sabbath year. We see this in chapter 15. Chapter 15. These would be activities they do every seventh year. This was to be a year of release. Now, in the book of Leviticus, it says this was to be the year that they released their land from work. They were to let their land lie fallow. But here in Deuteronomy, it says this was to be the year that they release their slaves from labor and their debts from being owed to them. Give up their employees, give up their debts. Now, already, especially if you read through chapter 15 ahead of time, you can tell this sounds a lot different than the last time you looked on a, for a job on Indeed.com. And this sounds a lot different from the last time you applied from a home equity loan. Remember, this was a society where the majority of people were self-employed peasant farmers. So let's say a farmer hits a hard stretch and he can't pay off his debt. What could he do? Could he declare bankruptcy? No. He would go work for a richer farmer. And this richer farmer would take on the poorer one's debt as the poorer one worked to pay it off. And then when the Sabbath year came, whatever this guy still owed was forgiven. And then the richer farmer would set him up for a fresh start. But if the poorer farmer still liked the setup and he loved the guy he was working for, loved the family he was working for, he could become a permanent employee or a slave. Now, slave might be the best translation for the word here. But given what I just described, I hope you can see that this is far different from the system of chattel slavery that existed in the United States and early in our history. A system that was based on a wrong view of racial inequality, a system that brutally treated people as property, a system that enslaves people for a lifetime from generation to generation. This is miles away from that. Deuteronomy 15 describes a system where if you hit hard times, you have the dignity of employment and you have the chance of a fresh start. And this didn't come through impersonal government welfare. This came through the personal love and generosity of a neighbor. I think this is a beautiful system. Now, obviously, you and I don't live in a society like this. But when we read the New Testament, we see that it envisions Christians not as those who run to comfort It envisions Christians as those who run to to need. Those who run to need. Think of the Good Samaritan. Think of the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 34 said of the early church in Jerusalem that there was not a needy person among them. That sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. You know, this is going to happen only if you're willing to take on someone else's need and even suffer loss because of it. So rubber meets the road. Let me tell you, West Creek can't pay everybody's mortgage here. But you know, if someone does hit hard times, we want to be a people that people can turn to. We want to be a people who are willing to take a hit when someone else hits hard times. It makes me think too of the time after uh, Judas says, Mary wasted expensive ointment by anointing Jesus' feet instead of giving it to the poor. Do you remember what Jesus says after, to Judas after that? He says, you will always have the poor among you. That sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. Friend, this side of Jesus' return, you will never lack an opportunity to help someone in need. So does that mean that every single Christian must sell all their possessions and give it all to the poor? Well, no, I don't think so. 
First Timothy 6 tells us that there were those who were rich in the church, but they didn't use their wealth to increase their standard of living. They used their wealth to increase their standard of giving, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. Now, each family, each individual is going to have to sort out what that looks like for them. But here's some food for thoughts. This really struck me as I read it. This is a a quote from an early church figure named Basel. He writes this. It's the bread of the hungry, which molds in your cupboard. It's the garment of the naked, which hangs useless in your closet. It's the gold of the poor, which lies rusting in your chest. Patterns of living. So far, we've seen tithing. We've seen the Sabbath year every seven years. And then this last pattern is the feasts. This is in chapter 16, verses 1 to 17. These verses lay out three different annual feasts. Uh, There were more in Israel's calendar, but these were the feasts that all Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem for. So there was the Passover feast, which commemorated God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, specifically delivering them out of the final plague in Egypt, the death of the firstborn. So you might remember how this works. The Israelites were to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. And when God saw the blood of the substitutes, they passed over the house. And not only were they to eat the lamb during the Passover, they were also to eat unleavened bread. This was because they didn't have time to wait for the, bre- the leaven to rise in the bread. They had to eat the meal to go. They didn't have time to sit. Then there was the Feast of Weeks, described in chapter 16. This later became known as Pentecost, coming from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, meaning 50 days. 50 days after they started harvesting their summer crops, they were to celebrate this feast. And then there was the Feast of Booths. No, this isn't like the booth you sit down in at Denny's. Uh, This is more like the tents you lived in during the time in the wilderness. And this was also another harvest feast, although this time this was for the fall crops like grain and grapes. Three different feasts. Now, you can look at these feasts a little bit like we looked looked at the unclean and clean foods. These showed how God's people were to be distinct, were to stand out in the world around them. And just like the foods that Jesus fulfilled, so also these feasts, Jesus fulfilled them. Jesus is our Passover lamb. God looks on his blood and pardons us forever. Jesus provides the harvest of new life in the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. The Spirit comes to dwell in those who trust and gave in their lives to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. He's the bread of life, the living water we truly need on our wilderness journey to heaven. Even though Jesus fulfilled all of these feasts in chapter 16, you know, believers in Jesus, we still celebrate a feast. It's the feast of our Savior. We call it the Lord's Supper. And just like the feasts in Deuteronomy 16, it teaches us to commemorate what God has done for us in the past, and it teaches us to anticipate what God's going to do for us in the future. And when believers in Jesus partake of the Lord's Supper, our distinct identity is made visible on the earth. So these are the three patterns of living that God calls for his people. And even though we don't have the same structures of them, you know, we don't have the same structure of yearly and triannual uh, tithing. We don't have these Sabbath years. We don't have all these feasts. I do think you can see three currents that run underneath them all and to see how they remain relevant to you and me as Christians under the new covenant. Underneath all of these patterns is the current of grace. Underneath all of these patterns is the current of grace. 
This is the basis of their motivation. So they can ask themselves, why should I treat my slave or my employee well? They look at chapter 15, verse 15. God tells them, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Why should I make this long pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to observe these feasts? Well, the motivation of grace, chapter 16, verse 12. You shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Grace isn't just the basis of their motivation. Grace is how they trust. How am I going to be able to give up 10% of my income, if not more? How am I going to be able to release a major amount of my debt at large cost to myself? How am I going to take long breaks from work in order to observe all these feasts? How am I going to do any of this? Because I trust God and what he has done for me out of his grace. Friend, I want you to think about your sacrificial giving. You are taking a break from work in order to be here. These should be acts of trust in God's grace. To say, you know, I'm giving up my money. I'm giving up my time because I trust that God will be graciously faithful to me and provide me all that I need. Underneath all these patterns is the current of generosity. Generosity. Friend, when you know God has been generous with you, you are generous with others. You're generous to the most vulnerable and the most dependent because you were vulnerable and dependent and the Lord came to you. You're generous in a sacrificial way because God gave the ultimate sacrifice, his own son, for you. You can take a look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. It says, you shall open your hand widely to your brother. Or chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally, generously. Friend, your heavenly father hasn't been stingy with you. Why should you be stingy with other people? You should be generous in a loving way. You know, these chapters don't envision mindlessly writing a check and then forgetting about the people you're actually helping. Now, over and over again, a fellow Israelite in need isn't just called your neighbor. He is called your brother. Chapter 15, verse 9 tells you to take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart toward a person who's in need. Loving generosity, loving. Loving doesn't look down on a person in need and say, you know what, I got where I am today without anybody helping me. I didn't need any handouts. No, love humbly acknowledges I'm in just as much need of generosity as this person is. Underneath all these patterns are different currents, the current of grace, the current of generosity, and lastly, the current of gladness. The current of gladness. Chapter 16, verse 11, at the Feast of Weeks, it says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Chapter 16, verse 14, at the Feast of Booths, you shall rejoice in your feast. My favorite is chapter 14, verse 26. Please turn there. I want you to see it because it's such a good verse. Chapter 14, verse 26. All right, so if they sold their tithe and they used the money to buy goods when they traveled, this is what God tells them. Chapter 14, verse 26. Spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your households. I love that. I love that. You know, this isn't a naive gladness. This is the same group of people who mourn over death. They are not one-dimensional emotionally. 
Neither is this a selfish gladness. We have noticed over and over again, they are still mindful of the people in need. They don't just spend everything on themselves. And neither is it a sinful gladness. It's not even sinful in partaking of wine and strong drink. The source of their joy is the God who has graciously and generously blessed them. He is their joy. You know, maybe you've heard it said that God cares about your holiness and not your happiness. Now, in a sense, that is a needed correction, but I think it's a false dichotomy. Even for people with all the rules of Deuteronomy, what these verses tell you is that their holiness was their happiness. You and I might, have this, might not have the same exact structures for the pattern of our lives. We might not have the annual tithes or the Sabbath years or the same feasts, but you can still live a distinct life if you are motivated by grace, if you are marked by generosity, and if you are moved to gladness. How do you do that? Well, in closing, you do that by looking no further than Jesus. There is no greater act of grace, no greater act of undeserved kindness than the Son of God laying down his life for you. You are no longer selfishly motivated to earn his love. You are now gratefully motivated because he has given you his love. And those who have received his grace can't help but to generously reflect his grace. To say, I've been forgiven much, so I love much. To say, God has been generous with me, so I'm going to be generous, generous with others. And those who have received his grace and reflect his generosity also remember this. That the one who calls me to take up my cross and follow him also has told me that in John 16, 24, he came so that my joy might be full. That's one of the reasons why he came. If the Israelites could rejoice in the God who graciously and generously blessed them, how much more can we who have new life through faith in Christ rejoice? The one who has generously and graciously blessed us. Friends, those who trust in Jesus have the unique identity of being chosen and redeemed. And you now show that identity in your distinct, gracious, and glad lives. Let's pray. Lord, when we view your love that is so amazing, that is so divine, we realize with joy that it demands our, our life, our all. So help us, God, to remember your grace to us, to remember your generosity to us, to remember that you sought us when we were vulnerable and dependent and helpless. Help us to be filled with joy and gladness over your grace. And then in so doing, reflect that grace with generosity toward others. Would you be glorified in us and do that in this group of people? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.